Hello and welcome to Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean, your host. I want to thank you for joining me tonight. We're going to have a fun conversation uh, with the brother Skyler. He has his own channel, Troubling Tribune, where it's about the creation, biblical cosmology, all kinds of fun topics. And uh, let him have some open questions for me. Before we get started, guys, I just want to remind you that thank you. Thank you, everyone that, that watches our channel, that supports this channel, um, everyone that's our Patreon. And don't forget, if you are on our Patreon at the $20 tier or above, you actually have access to our uh, the, the previously completed books in the contextual study guide. So we're doing over a hundred different books of scripture, but we've already completed um, over a dozen at this point, I think 15 or 16, and we're about to release some more. And I released the PDFs of those as I'm completing them on our Patreon for the family tier or higher. And so you have access to those, just scroll down the Patreon posts on the, on our Kingdom of Context page on Patreon, and you can see where I've dropped those completed books and you can download that PDF and have it to use and study and share and do all the kinds of anything you want with it. Uh, give it to people if you want, you know, I don't, I don't, there's no, you know, um, I'm not like trying to tell you what to do with it. You can do with what you want. Um, so we had this one person that wanted to go out and around the neighborhood and pass them up, pass them out. So that's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I guess he had the the desire to print one of them off and and ha have it printed off and pay the cost to have it actually printed off in a PDF and then go pass it around. So hopefully it's blessing people. Uh, we've gotten some good uh, some good responses from folks that they are being blessed by the contextual study guide, and so that's exciting. It's good to hear. One of the books that we've completed, we actually made into the book of First Enoch. You see over my left shoulder here. Uh, which is you can actually find on Amazon. That link is in the video description below. And that's just solely the book of First Enoch in a contextual study guide format, as well as illustrations by Green Green Pond Creative, our brother Drew Winter. So uh, yeah, it's exciting. And people are getting, we have some really cool reviews on there um, as far as you know what people think about the format for that type of study guide. So hopefully you guys are enjoying that. Um, we also have a new update real quick to let you guys know on the, the, the uh, app, right? So our Kingdom of Context app, it's free to download, Apple Store or Android, and you can actually download. We have um, just put up a new article last night, and so you can actually download that app for free. If, you, if you're a ministry or business and you want to verify yourself on the app and have a little uh, digital info card that pops up when people tap in your name, all you got to do is submit verification information. Uh, you can do it two ways, both through the settings screen or you can do it through the screen if you press the um, if you press the menu button that drops down and you say username verification, you click on that and then it pops up where you put your your business or ministry email, your phone number, enter your socials in there and try to fill out as much of it as you can because it's like a digital business card for people to tap on your name when they see your name on the app. When you comment on stuff or if you're on the fellowship finder, they can tap on your name and they actually see how to get in contact with you, whether you're a minister or business. If you're just dropping your email, you will not get verified. <laughs> I'm just, I, I've said this for a couple of weeks now, guys. I, it's designed for people that have a legit like business or ministry, right? So if you have a ministry presence on a website or a you know a church website, or if you have business like socials, you can find your business that's let's on Etsy or Amazon or LinkedIn or things like. 
So it's a it's for legit ministries and businesses. It's not just for the average individual to get verified. This isn't like a Twitter situation or an IG situation. This is this is more for a community to be able to find each other and help resource each other. So, all right, guys. Without further ado, I just want to say a big thanks to the mods and the live chat tonight. And uh, let's bring our brother in. This is uh, Skyler from Troubling Tribune. Welcome, brother. Sean, thanks for having me, man. Really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have you on tonight. So we had a, um, I had never, I hadn't found your channel yet. So you, you have a YouTube channel. How long have you had that? So I started the YouTube, I think, July last year. So coming up on a year now. And uh, we've been doing TikTok for about the same amount of time as well as uh, Rockfin. So been pretty fun. Okay. Cool, cool. Is Rockfin still requiring um, a invitation code? Uh, I don't think you need an invitation code, but they do vet you at least. But okay. that's it's actually a pretty simple process. I mean, I had no background whatsoever and was able to was able to make a channel. Yeah. So well, they uh, they have not vetted me. It's been two years since I've submitted my application and they have refused to, <laughs> to vet me. So, yeah, who knows? Um, so anyway, because people ask me all the time, why aren't you on Rockfin? And I'm like, I don't know. Ask Rockfin. <laughs> I applied to get on, but they said no, I guess. So but yeah, man, it's um, you're talking about some controversial things on your YouTube channel and as well as Rockfin, obviously. And so um, tell us a little bit about your channel's vision. It's It's called Troubling Tribune. Is that right? Right. So. It, true to the name, if anybody kind of wants to know the background, uh, troubling because it's troubling to the elites that want to enslave everybody. And uh, Tribune is has multiple definitions, but I'm shooting for the champion of the people definition. Um, also, it kind of sounds like a newscast, so why not have the double meaning for it, right? It's also very marketable, so I like it. Uh, my audience likes it. We're going to stick with it. Um, the vision for the channel, pretty simple. We want to bring to light the things that um, for the most part, by and large, get overlooked or uh, buried, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, things like the biblical cosmology, um, things that uh, humans actually have the ability to do that kind of prove out the idea that we have a spirit, um, basically shattering the mainstream ideas, you know, through and through, very uh, contrarian-like, and also covering some mainstream here and there, you know, things that seem concerning, things that seem noteworthy. We'll go ahead and touch on the topic. I think one of the first things that we covered was something to do with our own uh, school board over here in in uh, Florida, uh, hiring some uh, questionable some questionable people. So you yeah. check yeah. that out on your own time. <laughs> yeah, I, many of us who watch the news can probably understand the definition of questionable in that context there, uh, especially with the school boards. This seems to be an actual attack on uh, trying to indoctrinate the kids with uh, absolute Baphomet ideology of transgender transgenderism. And uh, I just, that's the reality of it. Um, um, so anyway, hopefully individual school boards are losing that fight and people are getting replaced and uh, parents are standing up. You know, we see, we see inklings of it as it slips through the mainstream media and gets into alternative media sources that people cover it. But hopefully they, um, that, that fight continues. Uh, I'm going to be homeschooling my child, so thankfully we don't have to get involved in that. But um, yeah, it's it's a big concern for a lot of parents out there. Now, you guys also on your channel, you have an open panel from time to time where you have people call in and you guys can have discussions about, um, you know, the 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 what seems to be the controversial topic of the shape of the earth that is not going away. 
And I say it like that because in 2015, it really splashed onto the YouTube algorithms. And at one point, it was actually searched as much, if not more, than Donald Trump as far as the, the searches on YouTube. But And I know that they had a, a congressional hearing where Susan, hard to pronounce last name, Itsky, uh, went before Congress and said, you know, oh, yeah, we have plans to actually mitigate and de-algorithm and de-promote de uh, flat earth content and literally testified before Congress that they were planning to suppress information relating to questioning the shape of the earth. And a lot of people thought, oh, that's going to squash it, but it hasn't. It hasn't gone away. There's actually just more people finding out about the shape of the earth. There's more people investigating, doing experiments and making YouTube channels about it. Um, they're not growing as fast as they used to, but you're a channel that popped onto the scene and said, you know what, we should talk about this. And you invite people who disagree with you, people that uh, still maintain the traditional narrative that we were taught growing up, that the earth is a ball in space and a vacuum magically spinning and soaring. And yet everything somehow works uh, without proof and without evidence. And so you invite them to come on. You have an open panel discussion from time to time. And what what kind of experience has that been for you? It has been um... <laughs> At times it can be a humbling experience because there are times where I'm, I do learn and refine my own position. Um, but I've learned that it, the internet scene is filled with zealots for lack of a better word. Um, they absolutely do not want to question their religion. Um, they do hang on with fervor and sometimes violently to their belief. And I've had, um, attacks as far as like, um, a lot of like gotcha moments. They try to tr get you into Sandy Hook type situations, if you know what I'm saying. Um, mm -hmm. Try to get you to uh, say things that can be misconstrued as bullying, um, and it's just really ridiculous. If if you know the truth is so obvious, right, and you feel that you have the moral high ground of the truth, then why ruin that by stooping down to um, ad hom attacks and uh, questionable tactics? Cool. Yeah, it it's um I agree with you. There there's I've watched a lot of debates on that topic and the disingenuous nature overwhelmingly comes from one side of that argument. And it's not the people that are questioning the mainstream narrative that are trying to do experiments and trying to take the definitions of terms like level seriously. Um it's not those people. It's the people that are maintaining the narrative of what we were all taught growing up that once you start doing the research, you realize where that narrative came from and how little evidence there actually is for it. And uh, it's actually motivated from a philosophy. And that's what a lot of people don't really understand. And it was promoted by admitted and known occultists. And this is where it just gets really nasty, right? It just, it just, so this is to me, why I thought it was such an important thing. A couple of years ago, I reached out to a brother, West Blaze Music, uh, West Blaze, and I said, hey, you know, we should do a biblical cosmology show that because there's a lot of people talking about this and some of them are believers, some of them are not. Um, but what if you and I, with our biblical understanding, came to it and started talking about it from that regard and how it relates to what the scripture has always been saying? Because I always try to tell pastors, like when I talk to people on my channel that are believers but do not understand biblical cosmology, they still believe they're on a, a purposeless ball in space that's doomed for destruction. I try to say to them, hey, do you realize that you're repeating a narrative that's counterproductive and counterintuitive and literally antithetical to the entire story of Scripture, the same Scripture of faith that you claim to have? Like, do you realize that? Like the full eschatology of the 
all the events that the scripture promises will happen in the future that coalesce to have the, the, the creator and his son descend to, to the ground in a large house to live amongst mankind. Like that whole storyline depends on a firmament enclosed cosmology. So why would you hold to a different storyline for your faith? And that's where the conversation, you know, gets dicey. <laughs> right. So person at that point. Yeah. And so Skylar, before the show, you were telling me before, like, that you grew up in a church setting. Is that right? So I didn't actually grow up in the church setting. I, I found it, well, periodically throughout my life. I, I first time in a church, my, my best friend at the time took me in and I was like four years old and uh, said, you don't know about the man upstairs. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, well, that's Jesus. And if you don't know him, then you're going to go downstairs. And I'm like, to the basement? What the heck are you talking about? Um, so church was, uh, you know, admittedly not something that I had taken very seriously. It was more of like a hangout thing. You go to play the games, hit the ping pong table, uh, flirt with the girls, all that good stuff. Um, I mean, kind of just, right? and then, uh, and then you get a little older and then you start to hear some of the stories and, and, uh, you start to take it, you know, a little bit more seriously as you, I, I think it actually has a lot to do with when you start looking at your own mortality, which, <laughs> You know, a lot of people don't do that, you know, think doesn't happen until later in life. But um, I've actually realized that it can happen pretty early on subconsciously and makes you do things. So in any case, I learned mainstream uh, churchianity, as, as I refer to it, where we're pretty much just listening to what the pastor says, the cherry picked verses, um, the whole entire uh, doctrine ideas that aren't based in scripture, really force fed and hammered home. And uh, doing all the pagan holidays, of course, you know, throughout the year, you know, putting right. up the tree that the Bible tells you not to do and all that other stuff. And uh, I, I just really, it just seems really hollow and not really something that was very fulfilling. So I inevitably ended up falling out of that. And then I discovered the idea that everything that I had read in the scriptures had been mistranslated, misunderstood, um, and I was already looking at other conspiracies at the time. You know, I was looking at um 9-11 conspiracies and watching a whole lot of alex jones and info wars so before you call me paranoid though it was uh not like i just take everything on faith-based but when you can look back and you can see a um you know an obvious history it may be questionable on the exact dates uh, there's some debate on that but when you can tell that you know certain versions of the story are definitely older and uh that we're getting a completely you know, seemingly a completely different version of the story. It starts to bring up questions. And I go through all of that, uh, minus the Apocrypha, admittedly. And I discovered that uh, I pretty much didn't really want to believe in the Bible all that much because it seemed like I had be believed, fallen for a belief that was at first misunderstood and had purposely been twisted in that way to be more accepting um, due to the idea that it really seemed to favor a particular group of people. And I really don't want to uh, get too much into gotcha. that. Yeah. Um, for obvious well, the, the way that some Protestant preachers portray it, it's called dispensation theology. And they will absolutely um, put in a little protected cubbyhole that certain group of people while saying all Christians are separate from them and have a different relationship with God. And that's very much not what scripture teaches. So, and you're not alone. There's a lot of people that have noticed that inconsistency uh, coming from men, not from the story itself, but coming from men. 
And so there's a lot of different key verses that they come to that bad misunderstanding. But then when you show them the other verses that dispel that understanding, that's when the cogdis kicks in. That's when the fun starts to happen because you start to see they're either going to be on it, intellectually honest about it and say, oh, okay, so there's not two groups. There's just one family of faith. There's one body of believers who are supposed to be disciples of Christ. And it's not this weird regulated rules for them and then rules for, for converts of the Gentiles and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's bad Protestant theology. Uh, it's actually carried over from Catholicism, but um, and it, all, it goes all the way back to the second century BC because there was a, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, I'm not sure how much research you've done into church history, but there was a, um, as persecution was happening with Christians in the first and second century BC, there was a divide that was started to happen between the Jewish synagogues of Judaism and the, you know, the same, the Pharisees and all those guys that, that slandered and murdered Christ, right? Those guys were still around after Christ resurrected and descended and was out of the picture. So those, those, so the Pharisees were still on the earth messing with the disciples of Christ and still trying to thwart them from believing in Christ. And they did this in multiple ways. One of the ways was they started chopping up the books that they wanted to make available for people to read. And so they made a public declaration in the first century that they wanted to, they, they threatened people with their salvation, just like you see, you know, very immature pastors do today. So first century rabbis and Pharisees, they threatened people that believed in Christ with their salvation. They tried to say, you're not going to get eternal life if you keep reading the books of Enoch, Jubilees, and the Testament of the 12 tribes. And so they removed those from a quote unquote canonization process. I mean, those books emphatically help you understand the role of the Messiah. So that was one of the ways they tried to censor people into not believing in Christ, as well as colluding with the Romans to physically beat, torture, kill, throw them to the lions and other means by which they physically oppressed and, and persecuted Christians. And that continued on up into the second century. And so by the AD 90, there's this council called the Council of Jamnia, where the uh, the rabbis of Judaism got together and they told and made a public declaration saying, anyone that believes that Jesus is the Messiah cannot be a part of our faith and cannot be considered Jewish and cannot be part of Judaism. And you cannot come to our synagogues on the Sabbath and, and fellowship with us. And so you had this stark divide that starts happening between Christians and those who were of, uh, who did not believe in Jesus, but were also literally their same, their same brethren. Cause you know, the first Christians were Jewish, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's the, the region that Christ ministered in was Judea. And so, um, so as converts were being made all throughout the uh, Mediterranean area and those different nations bordering their Mediterranean, they had a, they couldn't go and just go to the synagogue, which was like their old school version of church and hear the scriptures being read. So they just had many of them. If they didn't have access to uh, one of the bishops like Polycarp or um, Irenaeus to where they could go to and actually learn about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Genesis and things like that. They just had these passed around writings of the gospel of John and the gospel and some of the Paul's letters and then later revelation. And so they had a lot of misinformed Christians who were being persecuted by both the Romans and the Jewish rabbis. And so they developed a hatred for the Jewish rabbis just as the Jewish rabbis had a hatred for them so that you see this come out in some of the writings of someone like Justin Martyr. And there's, there is a prejudicial divide that develops. And then that gets carterized further as leaders of the church call themselves bishops and they start into this ecumenical council and, and then Rome grafts itself and tries to, 
you know, they, they took the old, uh, I'm giving you a huge short summary, by the way, but right. Rome took, Rome took this stance of like, if you can't beat them, join them. So they were like, all right, well, supposedly there was a conversion of Constantine that's highly debated right now. I don't really want to get into that with everyone in the live chat tonight, but that's the, that's the story you can read in history is that this Constantine emperor, he had a conversion moment of some sort, whether it was genuine and I'm not a judge of his soul. So I don't know. All I know is he stopped persecuting Christians and started to make an official religion out of it that the state endorsed. Now herein is another problem, right? Because now the Christians are feeling, okay, well, at least not, we're not getting killed anymore. But now this, the Roman empire wants to control technically what we believe. And so this is where I would address that famous um, criticism of the scriptures that says the Bible was only created to control people because the Bible has been abused to control people. But the Bible itself is much older than any one empire. And this is the part when you start researching the history of the manuscripts that later got pushed together in one book and called a Bible. They were just a collection of the scriptures of ancient Israel that were passed down from Enoch to Noah, down to Abraham, down to Moses and Levi, and then you know restored in the sixth century um, after some of the exiles came back from the Babylonian invasion back to the land of Israel, they were restored by the high priest Ezra in approximately the 6th of the 5th century BC. And so <clears throat> there is a, there's been an onslaught. And here's the historically, even secular, um, even secular, and, and I don't have all the citations in front of me, but I'm just saying this because it's going to, hopefully I'm trying to show a theme throughout history, that there's been attack on the actual concepts of the why these particular scriptures or these particular writings from ancient Israel's history, why do nations come in and want to get rid of them? It's a very peculiar thing. Time after time, they want to come in. You see this happening with the king of Assyria. You see it happening with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You see it happening with all different, uh, different kings throughout history that had powerful nations that wanted to invade, disrupt, and remove the writings of the prophets and the priests of ancient Israel, because they all had the same consistent message, which was there's a creator. He's going to send his son to become your high priest of the covenant. That's how he's going to make atonement and resurrection for you under the, under the creator's power. And all this is going to coalesce in time to a specific day called the day of the Lord. And there's a lot, there's eight times more prophecies in the old Testament about the second coming than Christ's first coming. So, there's a whole bunch of information they want to suppress. You see that being trying to be suppressed with the Seleucids in approximately the third century BC with the Greeks, right after the days of Alexander the Great. They wanted to remove the scriptures from Israel, they, literally to the point of trying to physically attack and kill and force people not to read the writings of ancient Israel. So this happens even into the days of the Romans, who in the first century AD, when we get the, the ideas of the Gospels and that whole time frame, um, they also didn't want people to read this stuff, even amongst the self, and this is very important here, the self-proclaimed leaders of Israel. So we were talking before the show, and you and I talked about this idea of, of church experiences. And sometimes you, you run into a pastor that wants you to believe something, but you obviously can read for yourself. And you read the Bible and you say, well, hey, man, I, this, I know you're saying that, but this verse right here, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, it leads me to believe the opposite of what you're saying, because you have... You can read. We were all taught to read. And uh, I don't know your, your reading level, but clearly you're, you're a competent, intelligent man who's creating his own platform. And, and I'm guessing you can read at a, at least a senior high school level, right? Maybe a little. 
Right. So with that, you have, you know, common general reading comprehension. And so when you hear a man who's a self-proclaimed leader of the faith, like a pastor, because these people are not ordained by angels or the creator himself. The, the arbitrary group of men that got together and formed a Bible school who ordained that pastor that that's, you're talking to at that point, those are men. That's not a divine order of God, right? Those are men who said, yeah, I'd like to be a pastor over other people. And so he goes to a seminary to get ordained by other men. This is very different than what the Bible outlines in the Old Testament as far as how prophets and priests were ordained by God. There was usually an angel involved. Like an actual angel would show up, other people would see it, so you have validation of testimony, and they would say, this guy's the prophet. This guy, you should listen to him. This guy we're going to give visions to about the future or about your coming judgment or to reprimand you to get back to following the wisdom of the Creator. So this, the society we live in today is full of self-proclaimed leaders of the faith. And this was actually prophesied in the Old Testament, that there would be a time when people that were believers in the Creator would not have priests and prophets at their disposal until the Messiah returns. So we're in that time that the Bible references as the time of the Gentiles. So it's very interesting that we see the same parallel all the way back in the first century AD. You have a longstanding history of powerful nations imposing themselves on Israel and people that believed in, in the creation, the Creator and His Son. And wanting to remove the writings for them by which they sought, you know, gain their inspiration and their knowledge of creation around them, as well as the creator himself. Because in those writings, Skylar, was not just the idea of like how to do a, an atonement sacrifice or how to give your offering. Like it, in those writings was a full description of the creation that we live in and how it works. They didn't want them to read. That's in the book of First Enoch. Have you ever read it? I actually have not finished Enoch. So I was this was definitely some of the stuff I wanted to talk about the yeah. one of the main things that um keeps me from like going full in on something like the bible is um just from personal experience I have a and I don't know how many people in the audience are really care what they'll feel about this because I've gotten a mixed bag of opinions on this but I have a out-of-body experience that okay um was one too was pretty profound and I was actually able to verify information um, you know, that I definitely was outside of my body. I was when I basically when I went back in, I woke up from this quote dream. Um, I went and I I checked the thing that I had seen because it was in my own house and I was staying with my mother at the time. Long story short, she got some food while I was asleep and I saw her and then I I checked basically when I woke up and it turned out that she definitely had did that. And uh, I saw it directly and I was like, wow, that's absolutely profound. And then I have other experiences with lucid dreaming. I've been told by people of the faith that this is a satanic practice. Um, yeah. that this is stuff that Let me you, ask you a quick question. Did you intend to do that or did it just happen while you're sleeping? So with lucid dreaming, um, it actually was with some intent. Uh, lucid dreaming. Oh, no, no, the, the out of body moment you described. So I will admit it's something that I've always wanted to do. It's mm -hmm. something that I have attempted to do of my own will previously. However, I've always failed. And mm -hmm. there was, I had a um, profound moment where I was letting go of fear. I had, was actually overcoming my fear of death. I had went mm -hmm. through a, before this, I'd went through phases of uh, bio, I call it uh, biological um, anxiety because it's anxiety to do with the way my body works. I'll feel my heartbeat. It'll freak me out. 
and uh, it'll just start raising my heartbeat. And the next thing I know, I'm at 180 beats a minute, like I'm sprinting, but I'm at rest and it just doesn't feel right. And I don't know anything about the heart really because I'm just a kid. So <laughs> I end up going into the hospital. They tell me I'm just having an anxiety attack, prescribe me sugar pills, uh, send me on my way. And then I have them um, repeatedly for months and I get to where I can't exercise or do anything. Um, so that's actually what led me to lucid dreaming in the first place because it was also forming um, insomnia. And then in my process of learning how to sleep again, I was also learning lucid dreaming. And it kind of happened all at the same time. I gained control of my dreams at the same time that I was gaining a little bit of control of my anxiety. So I had pushed it at bay to where it was to the back burner for a good while. And then I uh, still had episodes here and there. And then I went through a good period where I didn't have any episodes. And I was basically sitting on my back porch. Um, just thinking about things and going through my thoughts. And I was having the realization that I didn't need to fear death at all. And uh, I was also very tired. So I went to the, you know, my bedroom and sat down on the bed. And then I just felt like um, this crazy sensation wash over my whole body. Uh, this was not of my volition. This was just something that kind of happened to me. Um, but I definitely wanted it to happen, you know, just to be complete, you know, frank with you. And uh, for, I, the, for the audience's sake, real quick, can you define what you're calling lucid dreaming? Lucid dreaming is simply when you are able to recognize that you're in a dream and you're even able to manipulate from small details up to the whole entire thing. And it varies depending on your awareness. As I've realized that um, it starts off with just being able to recognize more details in a dream and then you start being able to read things. And the next thing you know, you realize that you can just poof and then there's something in your hand that you were just thinking of. And wherever you go, wherever whatever you think immediately happens. So it's pretty much just a matter of maintaining control of your own thoughts, which that's why I have a hard time believing that something like that in particular is satanic. I think it's more about what you would do with it that would, you know, be considered evil. But I'm curious yeah, just so that your scripture on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And real quick though, just so the audience isn't confused, you mentioned two different concepts that I feel are separate. And after your description definition of lucid dreaming it sounds like you also feel they're separate as well so an out-of-body experience is a little bit different than lucid dreaming it is okay okay so we're on the same page um i hey man when i was a kid i used to have lucid dreaming even up to the point of i mean it hasn't it's been a while but from time to time it happens less now that i'm an adult because i'm just usually so exhausted by the time i go to bed but when i was a kid i used to there was a moment and i didn't try no one taught me this it was just like Within my own awareness, there was a moment one time in a dream that I realized I was in control. And it was actually when I was having one of those falling dreams. And I, I felt like I was falling, but I stopped myself from falling and then realized that I was in control and it could fly. So then I just got happy and started flying around in my dream. So then when I woke up, I remembered it vividly, as vividly as I'm telling you today here, like 30 years later. And I decided, hey, next time I'm in a dream like that, I want to try to be cognizant and remember to do that again. And it happened. And it got to a point where um, I often dreamt and found myself, uh, you know, being able to manipulate things in my dream when I was only when I was aware, but there was never some like ritual I did. Um, and, and this is, you know, a little tongue in cheek. I'll say the same to you, right? Like I didn't draw a circle on the ground with a pentagram and some candles before I went to sleep. To right. ask to, to do lucid dreaming. I didn't uh, reach out to familiar spirits or to demons, or I didn't kill a cat in a ritualistic fashion and chant something in order for me to have a lucid dream or out of body experience. No, no, these are not something that I, I just, they just happened. You know what I mean? So 
you know, there's a difference in intentional astral projection, which is considered out of body experiences. And uh, there's an, an, or trying to manipulate something that you can have some sort of hold over someone else. That's usually how witchcraft happens. Witchcraft is usually not about exploring, you know, realizing you're in a dream and, and manipulating small details in the dream is witchcraft is usually so you can have power over others to manipulate situations in the real world. Right. And so demons are involved with witchcraft, according to scripture, um, astral projection is usually not for the sake of exploratory exploration or like for when I had my autobody experience, all I saw was myself sleeping in my room. I could see the back of my head laying down on my pillow and my body right. and and I had this weird like draw to go back into my body and I fought it as long as I could. But finally I, I went back into my body and I woke up and raised up. That's actually you know, pretty, uh, I'll tell you, Sean, that's actually pretty freaking impressive that you were actually nice. focusing on your body, but still managing to fight the pool because lucid dreaming, the reason, or sorry, astral projection, the reason why I, I, I do flip them sometimes back and forth because the mechanics, the way that you operate in an astral projection is pretty much identical to how you would operate inside a lucid dream. The, and I guess the a word I'm trying to come up for is maybe spirit mechanics, right? This is just, this is just how you move your spirit body and it's where it's whatever you look at. It's whatever you think about. And I haven't heard of people uh, looking at the object or thinking about, um, the object, which in your case would be your body, and still being able to uh, consciously fight the pool. That's almost like you had like a little bit of a split going on. Um, it, that happens a lot for people just end up in their own room. And I think it's a skill issue because it's just, it's your, it's a balancing act because you have to maintain um, your cool, you know, your emotional stability. Because if you get too excited or if you get, um, if you let your emotions spike in any way, then it's going to affect your experience. And you can easily go from an astral projection to a lucid dream. So it's kind yeah. of, it is a balancing act. So for the sake of the audience, because I don't want people, because we obviously, um, usually when the term astral projection is mentioned, it's in reference to occult activity. So for everyone in my audience who's who are students of scripture, I don't want them to be confused. Um, like I said before, these experiences that you're describing that I've described, we had no control over these. We didn't intend to do these. We didn't do some weird ritual. We didn't read a book on how to do them. They just, these are things we noticed happening and we're interested. It piqued our interest, right? In the same way, Yahweh of the scriptures, the creator of heaven and earth tells people that he will communicate through dreams and visions. And you get examples of prophets who have dream and priests in the, in the scriptures that have dreams and visions whether they talk about it as if their body is on the earth, but then they're caught up in the spirit and their, their spiritual nature sees something in the heavens, which according to the description of creation in the Bible is not an ethereal realm with ascended masters. That is the occult. The idea of a prophet or priest who's quote unquote caught up to the heavens in his spirit in the spirit is where he's literally, he's caught up to a physical level of creation above us. This is, have you ever seen um, any of the, our videos where we break down the, the picture of the creation model as described in scripture? No, not entirely. No? Okay. So imagine, um, I don't think I have one at my, just on my, immediately on my. I have my heard of seven heavens reference. Yeah. So imagine um, uh, a bowl, like seven bowls with getting bigger and bigger placed upside down on top of each other. 
um, seven firmaments, one larger after the other. And then the most high, the creator lives at the top. And then there's different levels with have different activities in the creation where the sun and moon and stars are and the, the angels, you know, live in different places. And all of it was designed with the focus of us here who were created on day six uh, and the earth that we inhabit. And so this idea of being caught up, there's a lot of directional terms in the scriptures that are literal, but people have just allegorized because they don't understand. They, they, they refuse to take some of these words by their definition and they, they, because they've been indoctrinated with this heliocentric mindset. So they, when they hear the term heaven, they're thinking like, well, if, if it's not past Alpha Centauri or, you know, the Romulus Nebulus Nebula, then where is it? And then they have to immediately resort back to Gnostic ideas or occultic ideas from ancient Hinduism, which they'll say, oh, it must be in an ethereal realm with a veil between us and the ethereal realm, which is the, the realm of the spirit, right? So they, because they're so unfamiliar with what the Bible actually describes about where they live and how they were created, they take and borrow from occultic descriptions of unclean spirits who are the quote unquote ascended masters to whom in this, in this other realm of principalities and spiritual forces and dark places, as opposed to literally just saying, God wanted to show you something in heaven above. And so he took your spirit while your body remained asleep on the ground. And I'm going to show you a passage real quick where Paul even talks about this. Have you ever, I don't know if you've uh, familiar with this passage or not, if you've seen this before, but this is in the book of second Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul references a guy, he says, I know, this is a verse two, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of it, I don't know, but God knows. So like he's admitting right here how visions work. Is there a, um, I am actually uh, familiar with this passage. I was actually going to ask if there is a description of one of the heavens being, um, any of them being like a pitch black place, like a place that's like almost complete darkness, but you can see the earth below you. Well, that would just be um, if we take one second, one second here, if we take the biblical description of creation seriously, there's uh, places in Job um, as well as in Isaiah, I believe it talks about, or maybe it's in the Psalms. I can't remember the verse off the top of my head right now, but it talks about um, the throne room of God is hidden with dark clouds and thick darkness that man cannot see him. And so um, the sun and moon and stars are in different levels of the firmament, according to scripture, that shine down upon the earth. And between that and above the sun, moon, and stars, before you get to supposedly uh, this area of the, th the, the higher levels of the firmaments, there's where the stars are. So imagine the sun and moon, the stars above them, and then the higher levels of the firmament above that. And there seems to be darkness in that area because the sun and moon aren't shining up. They're shining down on the earth. And then the firmament is a solid structure that encloses things. So there is a place of darkness up there where we look up through the multiple levels of the firmament and see the sun, the moon, and the stars. But then beyond the stars at a higher level of, of the creation is the actual place where the creator and his son and a lot of angels live, which is full of brightness and light. So this is why it talks about on the, that coalescing moment that I mentioned earlier, where it's called the day of the Lord, where the second coming of the Messiah happens and the firmament is rolled back like a scroll. And this massive house of God is going to descend down to the earth. 
it says that on that day that the sun and moon will be outshone by the brightness of the kingdom of heaven that comes down from the down through the firmament down to our level. So that what I guess what I'm trying to get at is the entire story of the Bible assumes we don't live on a ball in space. We live in a very controlled, contained environment that has purposeful function and engineering to it so that everything works as it should for a specific time period. And then part of that's going to be augmented in the future so that the house of the actual creator can come down and sit on the land of the earth and change the game forever. And, con- and thereby at that moment, connecting heaven and earth forever. And then all the nations that are still alive after this crazy moment will never, ever again be fooled to think that there is no God or that they live on a ball in space. Because they can be- literally just walk up to the house of God and go see him. And that would be awesome. Right. The uh, specific reason why I asked that question, and, and again, I actually will clarify and agree. No rituals were done. No cats were killed uh, during any of these experiences that I experienced. Um, at, at best, the most that you could say I did was that um, I exercised awareness and openness in the situation. But there was, a, uh, there was actually one lucid dream I recall. And the way that my lucid dreams work is I do wake up in them. I don't typically mm-hmm. – uh, some people can go into them from when they're just sleeping like actively and i'm not one of those people that can do that i actually let myself go completely so i can actually go to sleep and then i'll catch details during a dream that'll wake me up and there was one dream that i was having that was pretty profound i was up in a place of complete darkness and i was looking below me at a circle of earth that definitely looked like there was some sort of bubble or clear covering over it and i was definitely separated from the from that place i was like up high and there was nothing i was standing on i was kind of just floating and i wasn't really paying attention too much to my body at this time but i did notice that uh i knew i was supposed to be down there and i couldn't get there and that's pretty weird for a lucid dream because usually once i become aware i can just uh do whatever i want but this was not like that um i was trying to get back to the earth and i was unable to do so and then I was surrounded by these, I guess you could call them aliens, entities, whatever the heck you want to call them. And they basically taught me how to create image, certain images with my mind to be able to get back to close enough to the earth to where I could actually let my uh, spirit body, I guess, go through. And the thing that was interesting about this was that I already knew how to create things in a lucid dream. Like lucid dreaming was something I was very familiar with, but there was a, and it's, I can't describe it with words, but there's a different, deeper level of thinking about things and visualizing things that I guess I wasn't doing before. And these things communicated with me telepathically because there's no verbal words to exchange. It's just all thoughts. And so they, again, they showed me this method of thinking about things, completely visualizing each individual detail to be able to, I made, what I did was I decided to create little ledges that I could then uh, stand on, like kind of like reverse gravity, if you will, uh, which is interesting when you think about the idea that the earth is uh, between two Gaussian surfaces. Really interesting thought. But I was able to uh, get my way back down to the surface of the this bubble of earth and then 
all the other entities were on there as well, trying to, okay, now this is the part where you actually go through. And I'm like, what do you mean? Interesting. I, don't know, I don't know how to go through it. And uh, next thing I know is like a pop and I'm, fa- I'm free falling. And then I wake up. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I who knows, man. Um, you know, do you feel as a, an experience like that would, would cause you to want to investigate, uh, that there's a, a creator or that there's multiple gods. I mean, I kind of, I don't really. So the idea of multiple gods is like counterintuitive. I think that the people get the misunderstanding. I think that even in, you know, biblical cosmology, there's God, you know, the most high, and then there's, you know, the angels, archangels. Mm -hmm. And that's what some people would consider like quote other gods. But even in the other pantheons, I've noticed there is a, a most high God, um, even a, in the father patron God. Yeah. Yeah. And in every cosmology. And even though in some of them they've been overthrown, like in, in Greek cosmology, you have Zeus overthrowing Kronos. Um, and yeah, so yeah, they all, they all kind of have that. Um, I don't think yeah, in Egyptian, the Egyptians claim that Ra, whom I, I personally associate is the same patron God of Zeus to the Greeks. Um, and I, I actually have done an entire series on my channel about it. It's called the Investigating Babylon series. So if you're ever interested in that kind of information, uh, check that out sometime. But the Egyptians claim that Ra also became greater than the primordial waters that created him. Now, the the Israelites, they believe that Ra was literally just the character called Satan. And that he was a rebellious angel. And so it, it's like... It's so funny how that little detail is so often missed by a lot of people in church and intentionally overlooked by secular historians and archaeologists is that the, the Hebrews emphatically understood that Zeus, who's being referenced by the Greeks, uh, Ra being referenced by the Egyptians, um, um, Quetzalcoatl, the one of the Mayans, Quetzalcoatl, um, as well as like if you go to the east, you go to Hinduism, you know, that Brahma, those were the characters that those cultures uh, and had as their patron God, but the Hebrews knew him or that leading patron God of those nations. They referenced him as the Satan character, which was actually just a rebellious angel named Azazel from before the flood. Right. Which isn't that why they uh, do the scapegoat and call it Azazel and slap it. It's a the- part of it. Yeah. It's a, a part of attributing sin to the, to the Azazel. It's a part of the book of first Enoch chapter nine. Yeah. Yeah. It's still go ahead. I was uh the only thing I was going to ask is that um and I'm not super familiar again because I haven't read you know in depth the book of Enoch but I, I've heard that they've taught us uh, a whole myriad of things but there are some things they're like kind of messed up and, <laughs> and but then there's other things that might be considered useful but I was I was actually going to halt the question because I realized that without looking at it myself it's probably all just messed up stuff. Oh, you mean what the rebellious angels taught mankind? Right, right. Yeah, it says they taught them. Uh, well, it just gives like category categories of what they taught them. It doesn't actually show you or tell you with details like the how tos. It just says like Kukubiel taught about the constellations, and Arakiel taught about the signs of the of the weather and the sounds of the clouds, and uh, Azazel taught mankind how to make weapons and how to make antimony, which is makeup for women. And um, just it just tells you like the categories of of how they led mankind into deception. 
And um, and then it says in a general summation later, it says that the rebellious watchers, these angels, they taught mankind some of the secrets of heaven that they were striving to learn. But then it goes on later. While those rebellious angels are being reprimanded by the Most High uh, through the prophet Enoch, it says to those angels that, hey, Yahweh's telling these, these rebellious angels, hey, you taught mankind all this corruption and deception, but you don't you didn't you don't know everything. I didn't teach you everything about heaven and about the way this world works. So like even those rebellious angels um, came and they were sent according to Enoch and Jubilees, they were first sent to the earth uh, in the days of like a thousand years before the flood of Noah. So they could help mankind govern themselves because mankind had become numerous and that they were struggling to govern themselves. And so they were originally, and that is the job of an angel as stated consistently all throughout scripture is that they're supposed to be like a big brother that comes and teaches little brother how to do stuff properly. And they're supposed to be faithful with that task, <laughs> but these particular 200 were not faithful with it because they saw some hot shorties and they were like, Hey, who's this? Oh, this is a female. We don't have those in heaven. And so they, they're like, Oh, well, I'm going to interact with this girl and uh, the Testament of Simeon. Um, one of those books that I told you the first century rabbis of Judaism told people not to read the Testament of Simeon talks about how um, the wives or the, the women of mankind um, also liked what they saw when they saw some of these angels and they enticed them into fornication and sin. And so you got a mutual, you know, transgression here between the angels and the, and the women, um, which is, which is like, you know, observable in all human interaction, right? There's a, there's a common thing and, and no, you know, I'm saying this as politely as possible to all the ladies watching in the audience tonight, but there's a common observation in all of mankind and all of human interaction that, it's women can very easily be drawn towards a central point of authority and develop attraction for someone who has power as a point of authority. No. Something about the, yeah, something about the nature of being protected and provided for. And so imagine mankind struggling to govern itself. And then these angels are sent down. These heavenly beings are sent down to like interact with them on a regular basis. And then, you know, suddenly the women are, thinking they're hot and the angels are like, Oh, well, she's pretty hot too. So in their reprimand in the book of first Enoch, um, the creator tells the angels, Hey man, I, I did not create you guys to have wives. Like that's not, that was not a portion for you as a part of your creation. So you're by taking wives and procreating with them, you're transgressing the command I gave you as an angel and you're defiling yourself with the blood of human women. And as a result of this, those angels were considered damned at that point, could not return to heaven and were, uh, had to finish their allotted time out here on the earth before they were then sent to Tartarus, which is like a prison in the center of the earth, except for one, except for one of them that was left out because apparently he didn't take a wife, but he did get involved in deceiving mankind greatly. And that was Azazel. And that's why he's still referenced as the, the lion who's roaring around seeking he may devour, whom he only gets locked away at the second coming, which is called the consummation of the ages. So in that grand story, all of it assumes a biblical cosmology. All of it assumes that the nature of the spirit is a real thing. And so what you and I have been talking about earlier is about lucid dreams. You're talking about uh, out-of-body experiences. That is this idea. And, and I was trying to give ver validation to how the concept is real. I'm not like just 
I'm not assuming that you're just hallucinating anything. Like I'm trying to say the Bible even teaches that this is a real concept that, that is so real that the father literally tells you this is how he can communicate in some of these, like it's literally how we got some of our Bible is the divisions of prophets and priests where they would be asleep and they would have a vision of things happening in the heavens. And then when they wake up, they remember it and it validates with the previous visions of other prophets. And so they viewed it as legit, right? And sometimes an angel would show up in the sight of other people and give that prophet or priest a vision to validate the message so everyone could know that like that this dude's just not making stuff up to just gain attention. You know what I mean? So this is why I talked to, at the very beginning about the validation process of ordained, legit prophets and priests of ancient Israel and how we got this, this message and collection that people venerate so much as the scriptures. It wasn't just a bunch of dudes running around with some interesting ideas about having spiritual visions. Like there was people around like by, and I'm not talking just like, oh, there's three people in the room and, and an angel showed up and that says that Philip had a vision and they all say, okay. And then three of them have a Testament. I'm talking about like entire swaths of people in power, governments, thousands of people like the, the, you know, the story of the Mount Sinai experience, there's literally approximately 2 million people that witnessed and testified. Like this is legit. They started a nation out of it after that point. So the point is the idea of having an avatar experience is a legit thing it's a it's a way the father can communicate with mankind without hurting his body and this is what yahweh tries to explain in different parts in the scriptures is that he's so powerful because of the nature of who he is and the spirit nature is different than the flesh so there's two types of of creation i shouldn't say like that there's two types of of natures of of types of creations of there's either a spiritual creation or there's a fleshly creation made of the dirt of the earth so all the angels were made of heavenly substance of the spirit don't think of it like ghost land don't think of it like a wispy out-of-body experience think of it like a literal tangible different type of chemistry a different type of physics if you will mankind's made of the dirt of the earth so this is why man is not promised to live in heaven after the resurrection. We're promised to live here. The heaven was created with its own inhabitants. That part of the creation model ha already has residence. This part of the creation model, where we were created in the storyline, was always intended for us. But there was a problem with some of those dudes from up there came down here and wanted to live down here permanently and have babies and have families. That wasn't that wasn't given to them. So. It, there is possible for the two realms to interact, but not permanently. And the nature of man made of the dirt of the earth, the storyline has always been for him to be resurrected and given the same type of angelic spiritual body as those who were given it originally above. That's always been the storyline. And I'm, I'm, you know, clearly I'm summarizing in great, great swaths right now for you, right? Without quoting a whole bunch of scriptures. So this whole idea of, the, the occult, what they do is they manipulate these concepts. And in the same way, like in 1st Enoch 69, it talks about Kazdija, which one of the angels, one of the various angels who taught the smiting of demons. And they taught, he taught abortion also back before the flood. And, um, but basically he was teaching mankind about interacting in the spirit world and trying to manipulate and have control over spiritual things. And so a lot of the occult is a false interaction with the spirit world around us, the nature of how our bodies in the flesh live, but also have a spirit. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So there's the father uses that same composition, that same original design, but there's a good way that he uses it to help mankind learn truth and spread wisdom. But the occults, they manipulate that to appeal to your lust for power or your fear uh, or to appeal to your sensual desires. Because there's a lot of stories about people interacting with the spirit realm that leads them into sexuality and different things like that. Right. Pretty much it's, uh, you know, if you are going to tamper like that with stuff like that, then you just have to make sure that you're checking yourself constantly. <laughs> that makes total sense. I would encourage not tampering personally. Um, I know people are going to do what they want to do, but I, I personally would encourage like if that's going to happen and it's going to happen in the way that we see the precedent in scripture happening, the father is going to be a part of that, right? He's going to be um, guiding you, protecting you and leading you in part of that. Or if it's happening outside of your desire and bad things are resulting, you're, you're feeling actual oppression. That's also talked about in the scriptures as well. The impression of unclean spirits. So a quick story. Uh, several years ago, I was um, I had a dream one night that did not feel like a, a dream. It felt very real. Right. And I in the dream, I was in my apartment with my roommate and the apartment was like the living room was set up differently. We only had one couch in a, in a recliner. But in this dream, there were two couches facing each other on, on opposite sides of the wall. And I'm sitting there on this one couch with my roommate. And then I look up and there's another couch on the other side of the room. And there's a black shadowy figure sitting on that couch. And as soon as I like lock eyes with him, he floats across the room and like puts his hand on my mouth. And then I, I couldn't breathe. Ooh. And, and so then I wake up not being able to breathe. No one's in the room with me. No one's, you know, I'm not putting my hand on my mouth. I don't have my head wrapped with my covers and sheets. Like, you know, there was a spiritual attack happening. And then after a few minutes, um, I, you know, forcing, trying to grasp for air and stuff like that. And I finally can breathe again. And, and, and this is, we hear this talked about often as far as a spiritual attack is something that's referred to as a uh, sleep paralysis, but I don't think it's sleep paralysis at all. <laughs> I think it's literally just what the, the ancient worlds have talked about for a long time is there, there are these things that that first Enoch introduces It's called unclean spirits. And they're under the control of that rebellious angel is to torment, oppress and attack mankind because they hate mankind. They want a mankind to be eradicated. Like, so their motivation, how they work, where they came from, their origins, all of it is expressed to us in the, in a book that self-proclaimed leaders of the faith decided men shouldn't be reading. Sounds the, uh, pretty sus, right? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people who, when they're doing lucid dreaming, astral projection, things like that, do experience um, sleep paralysis. So that's definitely, it's actually, I would even consider it common, right? Um, the thing is though, and, and this is part of the lucid learning how to lucid dream. At least it was for me. One of the things that kind of triggered me, so, so to speak, to realize that I was dreaming was being faced with ridiculous terror. And I, and yeah. I, I do, I do mean it just like that. I would have dreams of, so my parents messed up and let me watch Jurassic Park when I was like three years old. So I have been traumatized uh, at, from childhood. <laughs> I didn't realize. And so my uh, dreams before I was becoming lucid would literally be of me being chased, uh, sometimes through like underground tunnels, um, sometimes through a city, uh, just always like tight spaces, uh, running for my life at top speed um, versus these um huge forces of nature, Tyrannosaurus Rexes, Spinosauruses, and things like that. And I'm like, what the f <laughs> Anyway, 
Um, and it was actually dealing with that particular moment of intense trial or slaying, being faced with the dragon, so to speak, that I was able to realize that I was actually dreaming and that nothing bad could happen to me. Um, the moment I will never forget the moment uh, I was literally being chased. I was outside in the, one of the city settings. And uh, as I'm running, I literally had the thought is like, wait a second. T-Rexes aren't real, dude. And I, I just sat down and I, uh, I cleared my mind and I did a little meditation and instantaneously, like almost instantly, the entire landscape changed. I was no longer in this city being chased by this uh, dinosaur. It's crazy. Yeah, that's wild. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, the unnatural terror, that is definitely an manipulated emotion in some of these dreams. That's not, it's not logical. It's not rational. It's not, sometimes it's not even justified within the dream itself, but you just feel a ridiculous amount of terror. And that is definitely absolutely not um, a part of, uh, a, it's not definitely not a common um, uh, precedent with having a vision of God, but it's more common with, with the unclean spirit trying to attack you, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of people that unfortunately have a very black and white dogmatic view about this from a Christian standpoint. And they'll claim like that dream I just told you about earlier, where I, I saw a black shadow figure try to like put his hand over her mouth. They'll claim, Oh, you weren't saved. If you had that dream. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're out there. Right. They'll say, Oh, you don't know Jesus. If you had that dream, cause Jesus will protect you. And I'm like, let me, let me read the scriptures to you, bro. Like literally Jesus himself was attacked by demons and Satan. Like, come on. Like Jesus himself, Satan walks up to Jesus and tries to tempt him. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's an attack on his character to get him to sin. You know, in the same way that mankind is, is tempted by unclean spirits and their leader, this rebellious angel, um, who are spiritual beings, they're not made of the flesh. And they also try to interact with mankind to tempt us to either, what do we do through fear? Like mass atrocities happen through fear. Great sin happens through fear. This idea of self-preservation. And is that fear justified? Well, it depends on what's going on, right? So this is why Yahweh is constantly telling mankind, do not fear, be still, I'm with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, and this is so important for, I think, the average person to realize is that just because you're going towards the resurrection and you're a disciple of Christ and you're putting your faith in God and his son, you know, to, to get you to the resurrection, doesn't mean that the enemy is not going to still try to attack you. Like it happens all the time. And so it doesn't mean that, you know, you're somehow less of a Christian. And sometimes it could mean that you're really doing, you're on the right track, you know, because you're literally getting attacked to be, to be removed from the track. Who knows? Depends on the context. But uh, I think it's fascinating that there are a lot of weird dreams that there are a lot of people that feel uh, emotionally attacked through weird dreams, right? Dreams that shouldn't make sense that evoke uh, a sense of doom or dread or worry or, you know, unnatural suspicion or whatever that it's just, in my opinion, it's just the way these unclean spirits try to uh, sow division, confusion, fear, um, you know, which causes you to lose your sight on your discipleship with Christ and which your discipleship of Christ, if you're following the instructions of the scriptures, is only going to lead you to a sound mind and the instructions of God, so that builds you up in your faith and makes you stronger, um, so you can be someone like Joshua in Joshua chapter one, who was strong and courageous, not turning to the right or the left, but following faithfully all the instructions of God. And that takes courage. Fear is the opposite of courage. You know, and, well, that's a poor way to say that. A lot of people would say that um, courage is doing what's right in the face of fear, but 
many times fear steals people's courage. So this is where we would encourage folks, look, you're going to get attacked. It doesn't mean that you're not saved, quote unquote, that you're not on the path of discipleship with Christ. It doesn't mean that you are somehow inferior or forgotten by God. It just means the Bible has proven what it's been claiming this whole time is that these unclean spirits are trying to get into your mind and heart to distract you and pull you away. I, and here you can, since you talk about other conspiracies on your channel, you can definitely counter this if you don't think it's true. Okay. But to my understanding of research about those who run the world, most of them are cultists and most of yeah. them are highly fearful of the master they serve. And that motivates a lot of their decisions. And many of them are involved in rituals on which they're entrapped um, through a sense of uh, entrapment of what they've done at these rituals. And now they live in a state of fear to play their role in this overarching game of control over mankind. What say you, brother? I think you're right over the mark on that, um, to be honest. When you get down to the nitty gritty of it, if you if you know we were to have an intellectual debate on it, it would pretty much boil down to is the um, is what the elite showing us a actually what they believe, or is it a script that they're running to try to uh, double down and and fool mankind in a sort of double bluff? And honestly, I can look at it from either side, and the <laughs> I've actually. I've been told that, oh, yeah, you think it could just be a double bluff. That's probably absurd. And I was like, well, really? You probably haven't played that much chess then. Uh, you haven't played that much video games. I mean, if a 14-year-old is able to do a double bluff on a Call of Duty play, then I think that when we're dealing with the people at the top of the world who are smart and diligent enough to you know, orchestrate and run everything you know, with or without spiritual assistance, I think we can assume that they're going to have a, a couple traps laid out for us. But um, I definitely, uh, a lot of the misconceptions that I've had about the Bible were, are, have been dealt with. One of which, you know, a huge problem that I had was that I've always felt that the Bible encouraged people to be weak and passive in the face of uh, evil and adversity. In that, um, you know, scriptures are referenced, and forgive me for not knowing the exact ones offhand, but that are things like, um, you know, there are going to be wars and, um, you know, all these atrocities and these things must happen. Um, so just don't worry because God's on the way. And I really don't vibe with the idea of sitting and waiting for evil to transpire in hopes that there will be, um, you know, some sort of salvation from me doing nothing. I actually feel like if I, and I'm not, I know I'm not the only one who feels like this um, as a man, and this might just be a trap of pride, but I feel that it's my duty to stop evil. And that if I don't do something and try to encourage others to do that, that I deserve, you know, whatever's coming. So th those are the big things that I didn't vibe with, but I've also since come to the understanding that. Um, you know, it actually tells us to carry a sword and, and things of that nature. Um, but so you're also, saying that you you overcame that that understanding and now you have a slightly different understanding of the Bible correct. doesn't teach men to be weak. Correct. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's very important uh, for people to understand, regardless of if, you know, people want to believe it full out or not. It's, it's always important to understand the actual lessons being taught. And uh, yeah, that these—it's not a story of uh, weak powerlessness being taught. 
uh, throughout the ages, but it's just what it's being made to seem, you know? Yeah. There's a, um, I'm actually doing a, a show soon on this. Uh, it's part of my 42 series and I'm going to be talking specifically about persecution of saints in this episode. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of moments in scripture where good men and women are persecuted by overwhelming force from evil men and women. And in that, and sometimes they lose that battle. Right. But the, uh, I think the general encouragement, um, again, without, you know, going into a whole sermon on this, but the general encouragement of scripture is that, look, we're not, we're not told to intentionally like the behave like the pagan nations, right. Where they would go out and, and for the sake of money, for the sake of uh, profit or for the sake of, uh, more land, they would go out and, um, attack other nations without cause. We're told to live at peace as long as it depends on us to live at peace with one another. But we're also told to vehemently defend our families. It's a part of uh, God's Torah. And we see that happening um, in different ways. And it's a part of maintaining justice in the society. So I, I agree with you um, and your new understanding that there is no place for us to just lay down and be slaughtered. A lot of people misuse the idea of Jesus to try to preach that. And they'll say, well, see, Jesus turned the other cheek and he was led to the cross and was killed. And I'm like, that was literally prophesied for him to do. Like he's literally, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, praying all night, saying to his father, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let that cup pass for me. But if there's not any other way, your will be done, not my will be done. I'll go through with it. I'll do it. Because it was prophesied in Isaiah and Psalms and other places in the Old Testament. Like when the son of God was sent to the earth, he would be persecuted unto death. And he would be betrayed by unrighteous men, by evil, wicked people. They would betray him and kill him because they don't want to do what's right, right? So they, they would kill the prophets who encouraged people to do what's right. And Jesus was the, the greatest of all the prophets that was encouraging people to do what's right, so much so that he was like, the power of God flowing through him would do miracles and that kind of stuff. So he ticked off people faster than any other prophet ever alive. <laughs> and as a result of that, they killed him unrighteously. They slandered him betrayed him in, in the court process to the Romans and then unrighteously killed him and, and made a public spectacle of it through the cross. Yeshua admits this is, this is a tough one to go through. If there's any other way to accomplish this, let's do it. But if not, your will be done, not my will be done. The same Jesus, like I said, eight times more prophecies about the second coming than his first coming. And in those second coming prophecies, he comes back with a sword. He comes back to stop those evil people and the unclean spirits and the rebellious angel and everything involved at the consummation of the ages to stop all the wickedness on the earth and all the un, the unrighteous killing and the slave trade and the abortions. I mean, just read Revelation 18. It tells you all the things that he's coming back to stop. And that requires warfare. In fact, if you've never read Isaiah chapter 63, it's pretty brutal. Can yeah, Isaiah was. Yeah, Isaiah is actually one of the ones I'm a bit more familiar with. Um, but it's mostly, and I'm wondering if you're familiar with a channel called bait to fill I am. Have you had a conversation with him or he, he won't talk to me, brother. <laughs> Weak. He, yeah, he rejects Christ. Weak. Okay. Well, yeah, he rejects I, Christ. He, his, I, I, uh, he, he would not like me addressing his arguments. Let's just put it like that. There's a, so I, those are some of the arguments I'd actually really like you to address because that was one of the channels that I, I've fallen that was uh, I was following that was going through some of it. But I know that he's not reading any of the Apocrypha books at all. So, 
not just that, but there's a lot of assumptions he's making of the 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 modern '66 canon in America that we're familiar with as well. Um, there's he's got a lot of subjective arguments where he doesn't define his terms, um, and he glazes over certain parts of it. So, you know, unless I had a specific argument of his in front of me, um, I would address it, and I would love to have an open conversation with him. But and I've invited him in the past, but he did, he has not accepted. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, what I'll do, we can have this conversation again. And uh, I'll have some of those arguments for you to address because those are, I sure. think, those are some of the really good ones to address. And they, um, they're like hard lines for the people on the on the sides of the fence. And so those are the types of those are the types of questions that I really like addressed and and answered. So I appreciate you taking the time. I know you said hard line at what nine thirty, eight thirty. Yeah, I got about 10, 10 minutes, to, uh, fifteen minutes left. I got fifteen wow. minutes left here. Yeah, before I have to jump off, but. Um, so yeah, I mean, like there's just this idea, uh, that's unfortunately a lot of churches preach is that you should just, you know, let yourself be slaughtered, taken. I'm like, no, that's not what the scriptures teach at all. It does say there will be a time when the forces of Satan, the first and second beast in this end times empire that rises up and exerts force over good hearted people and goes out and persecutes people for 42 months. That is when. It, you you may not make it through that when you try to defend yourself. It never it never tells you not to defend yourself. It just says that's going to be a moment of overwhelming force where you may not make it out of that. But at the end of that forty two months is the return of Christ. So that's when the resurrection happens. That's when he comes back to stop the evil. So if you you know that's when you possibly if you've been killed during that per time of persecution you know be raised to eternal life quickly after that anyway. And so the point is like there's always been. Um, moments there's there's in all the scriptures there's lots of examples of righteous men defending the poor the orphan the fatherless uh, those who are being oppressed upon by other people um, we see this all the way back to even genesis 14 in the days of abraham like this is a common thread of righteous men stopping unrighteous men from exerting wickedness and oppression on others and so um yeah it just it saddens me when i hear pastors and, and churches teaching a docile, weak, and unscriptural version of a man of God. So, because they, again, they, they take the first coming of Christ and not the second coming. They take the first coming and be like, well, so he went like a lamb to the slaughter. And I'm like, that was the point of the first coming was because he had to get resurrected to get to that glorified, promised first fruits body, that spiritual body that we're all promised so that he could be high priest in heaven's temple above for us. That's what leads us to the resurrection. It's a part of the process. It's one of the steps in the process that was outlined in scripture of why the son of God had to come in the flesh of a man. So that's where someone like uh, Beit Tefillah um, would reject the idea that the son of God was destined to come. Because right, he would... Go ahead. Sorry. I was saying because he leans on Judaism. You remember that? Remember those guys I talked about earlier that were immediately started suppression of the truth in the first century AD? The same group that lied and slandered and killed Christ. The gentleman that you mentioned, he holds their teachings as authoritative. You see? Well, I mean, how so, do you? I wonder how you decipher the, you know, the difference between the the books that were tampered with versus the books that were not tampered with. Well, what do you mean by tampered? Because I mentioned earlier, I said that there was a collection of scriptures from ancient Israel, and this self-imposed group of religious leaders came along and said, out of all these books that you guys are reading, we want you to stop reading this little collection over here, but you can continue reading the rest of them. So 
they didn't edit the words in them. They just, um, well, I, I say at that time, they didn't edit the words in them. They just removed books from people from reading them. So what do you mean by tampering? You mean like just there's different translations? Right, right. And I guess uh, working backwards, right? If we were talking just from what we know now, we, you know, obviously neither you or I were, were literally there. We, there is a level of faith that comes with the story that they tell us in the in the order of it. But, well, I say that, but there's also the actual act of, like, going back and following the similarities, and you can actually see where things were added in. Um, and so that would tell you that, well, the story that didn't have the stuff added in was probably older. So you can kind of do something like that. But I know the big way that we judge literary um, or aid or date uh, literary works is simply by writing style and um, medium, like whatever it was written on. So if it was written on stone or parchment or wherever, that'll give us the idea and its region. That'll give us the idea of like how old we think it was, which also goes back into like the mainstream assumptions of, of his story that we kind of do have to take on faith as well. But again, it does kind of leave us at least someone like me who doesn't want to take every anything really on just, you know, faith uh, face value. It does okay. leave someone like me with my hands tied because how can you know history? Yeah, well, I will give I'll give this to you. Right. History can be written by the victors. But at the same time, in the modern day. What we see of the scriptures is that. Even with what, and I listen, you're talking to someone that literally calls the current Bible we have today. That's the most predominant Bible passed around the world that has 66 books in it. I call it the modern edited canon of 66. Because I know that there's, there it used to have 14 extra books in it as early as 120 years ago. And then before the first century AD, there was a lot of other books that people considered as scriptures to be, to learn about the creator and how to live right. And you see evidence of that in the Eastern Tawahid Orthodox group of, of Ethiopians whom have had a different Canon than the Catholics had for like 18, 1900 years. So they've, they've had a long standing um, history in Ethiopia of people and they're Christians too. And they've had books like Enoch and Jubilees um, in their Canon for a long, long time. And they have always called it scripture. So I just would encourage folks to, as you're studying how we got the Bible and like, how, what can you truly land on as far as what is history and what is not? Um, because the world will always tell you the Bible's fake. You shouldn't believe it. It's full of uh, inconsistencies. Um, it's full of anachronisms. Um, it's, it's fake made up. It's not real history. Yet there's a ton of archaeology that never gets put on the mainstream news that validates the Bible every day. I mean, I was just watching an article uh, a, a find last night from 1979. Um, so someone found some silver scrolls in a tomb that literally was had a piece of uh, one of the prophets on it. I think it was Ezekiel, you know, uh, written written in seventh century Paleo Hebrew. You know, so well, does that mean that the Book of Ezekiel? I mean, this is it matches the Book of Ezekiel we still have today. So does that mean that the, the Book of Ezekiel was? truly written in the seventh century BC, like it claims, like this scroll verifies from its finding. So that means the stuff inside the book Ezekiel, was that legit? Was it because in these ancient scriptures of, of Israel, there's a, it's not just moral teachings and it's not just visions 
of some prophet having a vision, right? There's also history mixed in there, like which ruler conquered this guy and where they were dispersed to and who was the ruler of Israel during that day or the king or whatever. So like there's a lot of stuff that can be verified and has been. So I tell this story sometimes. I um, Back in 2012, I met an archaeologist that worked on the Syrian-Israeli border in the early 70s on an archaeological dig. And he found the one of the ancient chariot cities uh, or stables, um, a city that was designed just specifically to, to, to house horses of ancient Israel that had been built by Solomon. And the pillars that they excavated from this site literally had the crest of Solomon on the pillars. So there's a lot of books in the scriptures that mention Solomon. And 1 Kings chapter 11 literally says he multiplied horses and he had a whole bunch of horses because he was so wealthy. And this dude dug up an entire city that was a stable for horses with Solomon's crust on it. Is it true? I mean, that's isn't that how we validate other historical information from the from the Xi Empire, uh, you know, in ancient China, or the Mongolians? You know, we you know we we see a claim written by the historian, then we go dig up a site, and lo and behold, you know, anthropology or archaeology finds some kind of corroborating evidence. So why wouldn't we do that with the scriptures? So this is where you start running into that type of suppression we talked about earlier, and it doesn't come from just corrupt religious leaders. It also comes from people that are vehemently against scripture as being truth as a general premise. They will don't want you to know about all these archaeological findings. I mean, I, I never heard that story that I just told, but I literally talked to the guy that was on the archaeological dig. He told me that they, they had to be trained by the Israeli army to, to handle an M4 uh, a rifle because the Syrians were lobbing mortar rounds at them from the other side of the mountain because that's how close they were to the Syrian border. Like And so they had an entire group of Israeli soldiers literally trading mortar rounds with the Syrians over here and there over here, uh, putting their rifles down so they could dig up this, this site. Crazy, right? But you never, you never hear that on the, that's not like a popular news story that they're playing on CBS. Well, so I like, think, uh, just to address that point briefly, um, I do think that if there, you know, if there was a double bluff going on, and there is, I think there is evidence to suggest that in that, you know, they do admit that belief in the mainstream media is at an all-time low, belief and faith in the government's at an all-time low. And it's been that way for a long time. This was a statistic that I looked back in like 2013. So, I mean, it's only gotten tremendously, exponentially worse since then. Everybody that you talk to on the streets, like, man, the government's doing something wrong. So I think that they know that we won't listen to them. And they put out a mainstream uh, idea of like, uh, basically they put out new age spiritualism as the, as like the forefront. And they try to act like that's uh, like, that's it. Like that's the real religion and everything's really pointing to that. And then they have the politicians that are Christians in name only. Um, and literally. So they label themselves Christians to get elected because yeah. They know that Christians and people who go to church by and large are the people who will still go out, believe in the system and vote. Um, so they go and they label themselves that. But in any case, I for just forgot where I was going with that. Oh, yeah. The double bluff. So I think it is possible that just because um, I think that they would set it up in two different ways, just like kind of like they did with Trump, where they were like uh, they put Trump up there. And I'm not a pro Trump guy at all. I think that he was he was definitely placed there and doing the whole populist act because Again, they knew that nobody trusted the government. So all they have to do is put a guy up there that says, yeah, I don't trust the government either. And then people will vote for him, even though he's eating at the same dinner table as as Hillary Clinton. So I see it as something that's potentially very similar to that. 
It's possible, man. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of um I'm not a fan of Trump either. I think there was a lot of opportunities he had that he did not take advantage of to to do what's right. Obviously what's right, right? And he, instead he ended up backing things that are obviously not right. Um and that's just a general a general uh, statement without going into all the political details, but um you know, we were talking about spiritual beings and natures of things like that. And I've told this story, I think, two years ago on my channel, uh, very briefly. And um, I don't have, a, we're running out of time. I got four minutes left. So I'll give you the minute long version of this. Okay. So I'm a part, I'm a, a consultant on a project for a new social media platform that's coming out. And it's called Lighthouse. And a couple of years ago, some people from the Trump administration watched me give a presentation on Lighthouse to Rob Skiba on his channel. And then they reached out to Rob Skiba and said, who is that? We need to get a hold of him. Because at that time, Trump was being deplatformed from Twitter and Facebook and all those, all those things like that. So people from his administration reached out um, and specifically not his actual political administration, but his quote unquote spiritual guides. So a group of pastors that consider themselves spiritual guides for Trump, that they, they pray for him, they give him spiritual counsel, they, they uh, dealt with some of his family members, uh, some of his daughters and some of his sons, and helped them, uh, or not, not Jared, but I think just the one other son, I, I don't remember all their names. But so they claimed there was like a group of pastors that was like their spiritual counsel. And they, um, Rob Skiba gave them my number and they called me one day. And I had like a two hour phone call with these people. Not not Trump's uh, officials and not Trump, but these spiritual advisors that supposedly uh, had access to him, and and he he asked for their advice from time to time on things. And they were trying to vet me; they were trying to fill me out because they were they were wondering like, is this a, if if this lighthouse thing is successful, is this a good platform to Trump for, for Trump to go on to? And so, in this two hour discussion I had with them, they told me that the first year of Trump's um, administration in 2016 that Satan uh, introduced himself to Trump and scared Trump to death. Wow. Like, I'm not talking a dream. I'm not talking an out-of-body experience. I'm talking a dude walked in the room. Probably in a suit. And uh, and it was in a, supposedly it was a, a situation where everybody else in the room already knew what was about to happen and that this was and that this was uh, it was Trump's turn because he was now president of one of the most powerful nations in the of the of the earth at the time, and and that there was literally a physical meeting between an entity that they all uh, these highly powerful people knew that someone even more powerful than them walked in the room, and they later told him pretty much who it was, and uh, and he said it scared him to death and caused him to quote unquote um, reinvest in his faith and and re up his faith in God because he, he claimed he actually met the devil himself. So, I mean, hey, that's their claim. I don't know if it's true. I just know that that's a, their claim. And they were telling me this with all sincerity. And these men claim to be pastors. Um, and they were telling me that uh, the spiritual battle is real in politics and that there's a lot of deception happening and that they were trying to, you know, they, they were on Team Trump, rooting for Trump to dispel the deception and drain the swamp and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, he sure missed the boat if that was his plan because there's a lot of swamp left. So, uh, yeah. but either way, man, there's a lot to it. Um, I do believe we live in a world that we interact with spiritual things all the time. I do believe that we are made 
and animated by the breath of God, as Job twenty or Job twenty nine seven talks about, and Ecclesiastes chapter nine talks about, uh, Genesis two seven talks about, um, and so we do have an inherent connection to um, these spiritual things and can be affected by them, but we can also overcome them. This is what Second Corinthians ten five talks about that we would expose that we would not just kowtow to these evil spiritual forces that want us to do wickedness and turn from the creator, but instead we would expose them, bring them to light. So other people aren't deceived by them. We would take captive those things and submit them to the authority of Christ. And therefore we as disciples of Christ walk in the teachings of Christ because it only leads to wisdom, strength, and eternal life in the future, which is what the scriptures say. So that would be my general encouragement. Um, brother, I wish we had more time tonight. I got to jump off, uh, unfortunately, at this point, but I'd love to have it back on again if you're if you're willing. Absolutely, man. This has been a blast. A uh, lot of food for thought, and uh, I'll definitely have some stuff prepared for next time as well. I would have had more prepared, uh, but I was dealing with the, the whole cat situation. My followers know what was going on. Uh, brief, very brief update. All is going well, and we're probably picking them up tomorrow. So thank you all for the support and the love. Hey, fur babies are babies. I know, man. All right, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone that's in the live chat. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm sorry I got to cut early tonight, but um, we'll do this again. And uh, we've got, I believe, what is tonight? Tonight's Thursday. Yeah, so I've got a debate on Saturday. Uh, I'll be dropping more information about that as it goes. We'll also be doing our, our regular Saturday um, Sabbath Fellowship broadcast and then have 42 on Sunday night. So we got a power pack weekend. Hope to see you guys all here in the future. And Skylar, hope to talk with you again in the future as well. All right, brother. Talk to you guys later. Bye, everyone.